Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. Good morning. Woo! All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 7 this morning. We're continuing on in our series entitled Summer Camp, where our objective is to make friends and meet Jesus. We'll talk a little bit later uh, today how we can make some friends. we got a couple of events coming up. Uh, but right now, uh, we spend some time, we open up the scriptures, and we meet Jesus. And how we're meeting Jesus uh, through this series is by looking at stories where Jesus has one-on-one -on -one, uh, or one-on-a-couple interactions with like specific people. And so uh, we've been looking through those over the last six weeks. Today marks the halfway point of summer camp, which means summer is halfway over, by the way, if you were wondering. And, uh, and then after this, this, obviously, we'll finish out our second half. But this morning, we've got a story of the, the faith of a non-Jewish person. This is our first uh, non-Jewish human that Jesus interacts with. I say human because we saw Jesus' interaction with Satan in week one. Uh, Satan was also non-Jewish. And so now we see his first non-Jewish human interaction here, at least as our story goes. And this guy is a centurion, most probably uh, a Roman. Uh, he's a centurion, which one historian called the backbone of the Roman army. A centurion meant he was over 100 soldiers, uh, really over a specific region. We're going to see that that region is Capernaum, a place that we've talked about much uh, over the last few weeks because we've seen Jesus frequently in Capernaum. The man, the centurion, is a good man. Uh, the Jewish elders speak very highly of him. He's a great man in the sense that he has power and authority over this region. And he's a generous man. It says that he built their synagogue. Uh, the insinuation there being he funded their place of worship. And so here we have a man, a powerful man, a good man, a man of authority, a generous man, who's a, a foreign man in the sense that he's not from Capernaum. And so his foreign nation, given power by the emperor, he now um, exercises power over a, a place where he doesn't reside, but he's being good to the locals. And we're going to see that that plays out importantly in the rest of the story. And so this good, generous, great foreign man who has power and authority there in Capernaum, um, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see why he approaches Jesus, how he approaches Jesus, and how Jesus responds. Let me say it again. We're going to see why he approaches Jesus, how he approaches Jesus, and how Jesus responds. And so we'll look through all three of those. And then at the end, like we always have to do, we'll try and see ourselves properly in the story. And so here we have this great Roman man, this centurion. It says at the beginning of our story, after he, now that he there is Jesus, after Jesus had finished all his sayings, which was one installment of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum is going to be the same place uh, where Jesus in week two cast out the evil spirit in the synagogue. And so uh, he rolls into town, Jesus does. It says, now a centurion, the man I've just described to you, had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And so we find out later, right, that the centurion had built the synagogue. And so Jesus had done miracles in that 
same synagogue that this man had funded or, or you know, bought and, and, and made and built for the Jewish people. And so maybe Jesus had heard of the centurion, you know, as he was in there doing what Jesus does. And they would have been like, oh, there's this great centurion. He paid for this whole thing. Isn't it beautiful? Right? And maybe the centurion had heard, oh, you know, there's this new rabbi named Jesus and he's doing incredible things. In fact, the other day in the synagogue that you built, he healed this guy and sent this demon running. It says that the centurion, when he heard that Jesus was back in town, wanted to reach out to him. Well, the centurion's servant is sick. Now, if you've seen the movie uh, the, um, the Gladiator with Russell Crowe, then uh, you've seen, hi, calf, then you've seen um, how Romans uh, treated their slaves and their servants, right? Uh, and the uh, kind of contemporary, that culture back then, kind of the response to a slave or a servant was, uh, one of the said, uh, when they no longer serve a purpose, dispose of them like you would an animal. And so the typical picture of a servant here, that's kind of a, even a softer word, slave is probably a more appropriate word, uh, is to not value them, you know, to not even look at them as people. So here you have a slave or a servant, somebody who is as low as you can get on the the ranking order, and you have the most powerful man in town, the centurion. And it says the centurion, uh, highly valued. Now the phrase here, highly valued, is not an economic term. It's not saying uh, he was of economic benefit to him, uh, like he was a good worker. No, it's a term of endearment. Highly valued. This phrase is used about Jesus, actually, in another part of Scripture. He highly valued him. We could say it this way. He loved him. He cared about him. He was compassionate towards him. So you have a Roman centurion, a man of great power and authority, who's in a foreign land, who loves a foreign person deeply, cares deeply about this person. And who is this slave? Who is this servant? It says he was sick to the point of death. Sick to the point of death. He's a servant. He has really no right from like a legal perspective to demand that his employer take care of him. He has uh, no hope really that he's going to get healed or better. There's nothing in culture that puts like pressure on the centurion to make sure that he takes care of this lowly slave. In fact, the cheapest, uh, most um, probably common approach to this problem would be just let him die in the field when he's done. And so this servant uh, is stuck. He uh, is really out. He's done. He's going to die. The sickness to the point of death. He's just on the brink of it all ending. And he would have ended up probably dead in a field unless, unless the centurion highly values him. Unless the centurion steps in to do something. We see a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of um, kind of secondary purposes in this text. One of them, it shows us, is a reversal of high and low. A reversal of high and low that Jesus is going to talk about later. And when Jesus says, you know how, the, how, the, how, how people in authority lord it over you or rule over you, but I say, how we say it around here, real leadership serves people. 
We're going to see a reversal of high and low, where he who is high, the centurion, is going to serve and care about he who is low, the servant. In this, uh, we see a proper relationship between high and low. We see that the the person who was low showed uh, obviously great respect, worked hard, and endeared himself to his centurion. A reminder to those of us who are followers of Christ that when we find ourselves in a position of lowness, how we should respond to those who are high. Peter uh, later, the Apostle Peter, in one of his letters, was writing to, um, he called them servants and masters, but our modern translation would be like employees and employers, and he said, even when they're unjust, respect them. It shows us how, as Christians, when we find ourselves in a low position, low because we're youngest, low because we're weakest, low because we're subservient, how we are to act as followers of Christ in such a way that those who are high would, um, would, would, would value, would love, would appreciate us, or as Peter says, would have nothing bad to say about us. You know what Peter does say? <laughs> he says, even when they're unjust. In other words, even when the boss is bad. Live in such a way. Live in such a way that they would respect and honor you. We see how high, for those of us who find ourselves in high positions, High because we're parent. High because we're the coach. High because we're in charge. We have the power. We own the thing. We're the boss. We're fill in the blank. How is high to treat low? We see it here. High is to love, value. In fact, to ask, answer the question, why? Why did the centurion approach Jesus? Here's why. His affections caused him to leverage his position. His affections caused him to leverage his position. He took his position of power and strength, authority and influence, and he offered it to one who had none of it. I was having lunch with another pastor this week, and he was sharing with me about a ministry that he has heard of recently. It's called, uh, I think, Around the Table. And uh, how the ministry works is um, people volunteer, um, and it's not like specific church, but like any, anybody in the community, uh, but predominantly Christians, that's what it was started for. They volunteer, uh, and they sit around a table, and there's like five or six people at the table. And what these five or six people are supposed to do is to take their network and their connections and to leverage their social capital. No money crosses uh, the table, but just connections and social capital, and they give it to the one person who's at the around the table with them who's in a low position. It's a really cool ministry. And, and what they don't do is they don't give advice. They don't tell the person what their goal should be in life. They don't tell them how to live their life. They just listen to the person who's um, like being ministered to, and they just offer their social capital. They leverage their position for the good of somebody lower. We're going to see, of course, later in the story how Christ fulfills this. But it's a reminder to us in high and low positions how we are to act in Christ. Why did the centurion approach Jesus? His affections caused him to leverage his position. So then he approaches Jesus. But how? How does he approach Jesus? Well, we're going to see that he doesn't directly approach Jesus. He does it indirectly. Now, uh, an understanding of the culture of the time was that when somebody went on your stead, it was like you were approaching them yourself, but he's really using intermediaries or intercessors. 
So how does he approach Jesus? Well, the first uh, way he approaches Jesus is through Jewish elders. Now, the Jewish elders would have been the elders at the local synagogue. This is not the same thing as the Pharisees or the scribes or even the disciples. These are locally elected or appointed officials over the synagogue. Now, these individuals obviously like this guy. I mean, he built them their synagogue, right? So there's a relationship that is there. Uh, but we see first that the Jewish elders are going to approach Jesus on the centurion's behalf. Why? Why? Well, the centurion is approaching Jesus out of respect or with respect. How so? Well, Gentiles, this Roman centurion would have known that for Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, it would be wrong, inappropriate, or cultural taboo for him to enter into the house of a Gentile. So here you have the most powerful man in town, the centurion. The great man, the respected man, the rich man, the guy who has funded uh, everything, and the guy who holds all of the political power, who holds all of the military might. And he's going to approach Jesus with respect, understanding who this rabbi is, trying to approach him in the most respectful way possible, showing deep humility. And so he sends the Jewish elders, and the Jewish elders go, and they approach Jesus on his behalf. Look at what they say. It says, they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. They make the case for him. Jesus, this guy's awesome, and he gives us money. He's fantastic. You should really do this for him. And they use these words, he is worthy. So the first way he approaches him, he approaches him with respect. But then later on in the story, we're going to see that he's going to approach him again. This time he's going to approach him through his friends. Now, we don't know if the friends are Jewish or non-Jewish, Roman or whatever else it might be. But he's going to approach him uh, with his friends. And he's going to approach him now with uh, respect and understanding. How through understanding? When what he says, this is probably the most famous line from this story. He looks at him and he says, uh, you don't need to come to my house. Like, uh, first off, I kind of know that um, you really shouldn't be going into a Gentile's house uh, and you don't feel you know, necessarily right about that or that's not normal or common. Um, but more so, he's gonna speak from his own experience and he understands something about Jesus. In fact, he understands something about Jesus that Jesus is later gonna say, no one understands this about me. Here's what he says. He says, I'm a man under authority, or under there really means who possesses authority. And I tell somebody, come, and he comes. I tell somebody, go, and he goes. I tell somebody, do this, and he does it. And so he's looking at his own life and his own perspective on life, and he's saying, I understand what it is to have authority. I understand what it is to have power, what it is to tell something uh, this needs to be done, and it gets done. And so he takes his own perspective on his own military power, and he applies it to Jesus. In other words, he understands Jesus in a way that Jesus is going to say, the Jewish people don't yet even understand me like this. You know what this is also doing? It's foreshadowing the Holy Spirit. There's a foreshadow of the Holy Spirit in here because we're going to see an exercise of Jesus's power when he's not even present, which will be how Jesus operates later when he goes back up into heaven. 
And he says, it's better for you that I go because then you'll have the Holy Spirit with me. In other words, just because I'm not physically present doesn't mean my power isn't present. And so as the guy is, uh, Jesus, the guy, as Jesus is walking to the house, he sends out his friends and he says, no, no, no. Tell him he doesn't need to come here. I know that he has authority. What kind of authority? What kind of power that he can just say it or he can just think it and it will happen, it being the healing. He understands Jesus. Do you and I? Do we understand Jesus's authority and power? Jesus's authority to heal. Jesus's power to save. I think sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in the idea that if Jesus were present, there would be more power. This story is the reminder to us of the coming of the Holy Spirit, that all of the power of Jesus is available right now, that his Holy Spirit is here in the presence of his believers, indwelt in his followers. And the same power of Jesus that was in the synagogue and looked at the man and said, cast the spirit out, this Roman knew, even if he's not here, he still has authority. What kind of authority does Jesus have? Do you see the picture? What kind of authority does Jesus have? The same type of authority of a high-ranking military official to look at someone and say, go or do or make sure this happens. That's a picture of Jesus's authority. It's a picture of it. In other words, as certain as the Roman centurion was that if I tell someone to do something, they're going to do it, is as certain as if Jesus wants to do something, is getting done. And so he approaches Jesus with respect and understanding, but he does it through intercession, through intercession. Now, if you're not familiar with this term intercession, it's a type of prayer. That's how we most commonly use this word in Christian circles. And intercession is the act of praying on behalf of somebody else. Earlier in the story, when it talked about how the Jewish elders approached Jesus, it said that they pleaded with him earnestly, a phrase that's repeated a few times in scripture. Uh, But what it means is to beg, is to ask fervently. I mean, the words really say it themselves. They pleaded with him earnestly. They begged Jesus. Now we see in how the Jewish elders approach Jesus. When the Jewish elders approach Jesus, they use these words. He is worthy for you to do this. When the um, friends approach Jesus and they're just quoting the words of the Roman centurion, he uses these words. I am not worthy. So what's going on here? Are the Jewish elders just speaking out of their motives because he gave them money? I don't necessarily think that's the case. Here's what I think this is. I think this is a picture for us on how good intercession works. For instance, when I pray on my own behalf, here's what I don't do. I don't get on my knees and pray and say, God, I need this to happen. And let me tell you all of the reasons why it should. Let me tell you how I'm good. Let me tell you how I'm following scripture. Let me tell you how I'm generous. Let me tell you how I'm doing your will. I don't do that. You know why I don't do that? Because if I'm gonna lay out all of my good, I know that Jesus also knows all of my bad. And so I don't want to approach the throne on my own merits. 
I don't want to lay out Jesus. I hope you do this because. Some of us, we live our entire Christian faith like this. And, and, and we've been crushed in part by it. We've lived our Christian faith in such a way that says, wait a minute, God, I did this and this and this. How now is this bad thing happening? So when I approach Christ, it's more like this. Father, I would not presume anything upon you. Like this Roman said, I know I have no right. I may have authority, Lord, in some small area of life, but when it comes to your realm, I have no authority. You see how the Roman gets that? He sees how all of his authority here in the practical means nothing in the spiritual. And so he knows he can't take his power from one place and shift it over to another one. So when I approach God, I want to do it, and I hope you do too, with respect, humility, and understanding. I don't demand anything of God. He's already given me everything I need in Christ. But here's how I pray for other people. Here's how I pray for other people, people I love, people I care about. God, I know that person's got some problems, but they're awesome. Lord, they're kind and they're generous and they're good and they love you, and, and, and they want more than anything for your kingdom to advance. Father, would you blank for whoever? And I plead my case to God when I pray on other people's behalf. This is to be a part of the Christian life. In fact, you can throw it up. I mean, it's a pretty simple prayer. Father, would you blank for blank? Because see, what we see here, you can leave that up. What we see here uh, in this story is how intercession is to work. They're pleading earnestly, the Jewish people are, on behalf of the centurion, begging Jesus. And Jesus, we said, how, how is Jesus going to respond? He says he goes with them. He's teaching us what? That somehow intercession moves the heavenlies. Intercession moves the heavenlies. Your prayers can move things. It doesn't mean you're bending the will of God. It means you're finally praying the will of God into existence. Your intercession, your intercession can move things. Your intercession can, um, uh, can be what, what sparks salvation healing, the job, the peace. So I want to practice this right now. I want to practice this. So Father, would you blank for blank? I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Think about somebody you could plead for right now. We're going to all take a second here. We're going to pray on somebody else's behalf. Go ahead. Father, right now, prayers are being lifted up to you. Prayers of people who need healing. 
Prayers of people who are in rough circumstances. Prayers of people who need peace. Would you hear the prayers of your people? Would you be moved by it, please? We ask this humbly, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you make that a part of your life as a Christian? Would you make that a part of your life to intercede for other people, to plead earnestly for them? But then let's reverse it. Are you humble enough to let somebody else do this for you? The centurion was. The man of great authority, the man of great power who could have marched in with a hundred soldiers behind him into the synagogue and say, in the house that I built, Jesus, will you come with me? And he didn't. He was humble enough to rely on other people to pray for him. Are you? Are you humble enough? to lay out a request to somebody else and say, would you plead to God on my behalf? Would you, would, you, would you pray for this thing? This is Christianity working together. This is the church working together, pleading on each other's behalf. There's somebody in our church right now, uh, we're actually gonna sing a song that they requested at the end of service today who is praying on behalf of somebody in their life. And my story right now is relatively vague because they requested that it be that way. Um, but his affection has moved him to just love this person in his life. So much so to reach out to us and to ask us for help. And it's a beautiful reminder and story uh, that this is how we get to work together, friends. Pleading uh, for other people, but then also corporately pleading for each other. And so you guys don't know this story at all, but I'm gonna pray for this person Right now, would you pray with me? Father, you know the circumstance. You know all of the parties involved. We pray for your mighty grace to work through this entire situation, to bring salvations and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. So why did he approach him? His affections caused him to leverage his position. How did he approach him? With respect and understanding through intercession. And how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus takes two actions in this story. Action number one, it says, and Jesus went with them, as I've spoken previously, reminding us that, um, that, that God responds to intercession. And so Jesus moved after they pleaded with him earnestly, after they interceded on the centurion's behalf. But then we see Jesus do one more thing. One more thing. It says, when Jesus heard these things, I'm in verse nine, he marveled at him. Last week, I asked the question, what makes Jesus angry? This week, we asked the question, what makes Jesus marvel? What makes Jesus look back and go, whoa, that's awesome. You know what it is? Humility. Humility that can yet still confidently approach God in faith. That makes Jesus marvel. Humility that yet can still be confident to approach Jesus in faith. That makes 
Jesus marvel. That makes Jesus marvel. Now the story, it's a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus' power even where he's not present. It's a, it's a picture of how we can intercede, but we also have to stop for a moment and we have to see ourselves in the story. We have to see where it is that we fit into it. And it is true that you and I should have faith like the centurion. It's true that you and I should intercede like the friends and the Jewish elders. Those things are true. But here's where I think, for me, the most beautiful picture of the story is. The servant. The servant. The servant here in the story is near to the point of death. The servant here is, Lindsay's going to go tell Jake to tone it down a little bit. But here's the good news. Our kids are having fun. Here's the better news. There's a field about 50 yards that way. The servant is near to the point of death. He has no hope in healing, no hope of salvation, no hope of restoration. And he would die unless someone with greater authority stepped in. So let me tell you about a man of great authority. A man of great authority who came from a distant land and exercised power in a place where he was a foreigner, Jesus. A man who completely reverses high and low. Who didn't take his high position of being God, not just over a hundred guys, but didn't take his position of being God as something to hold on to. So instead of just serving that which was low, he became the lowest of the low so that you and I could experience the highest of the highs. And so we weren't close to the point of death. Scripture tells us that we were dead in our sins and would have been left to that forever. But Jesus comes and reverses high and low, makes himself low so that we can experience exactly what the servant experienced, restoration, healing, redemption. That's what we have in Christ. That's who he was for us. And you know what the scripture says? That he now intercedes on our behalf. That how he pleads to the Father for you and I. That's the gospel in this story. And once we experience the gospel as the servant, once we experience the gospel as the one who was in deep need, and we had somebody who leveraged his position out of affection for us, once we experience that, then what? Well, then we live out of that. Then we grow into being the centurion who would leverage our position for others. Let's pray. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.